Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, historian Mei Nai joins Judge Denny Chen to discuss how migration has shaped American life and culture, as well as the history of American immigration policy. So our topic tonight is migration. How has uh, migration shaped American life and culture and transformed uh, the country? And why has it become such a divisive issue? Um, it, our government was literally shut down for uh, a few weeks, uh, and, and it's um, in the headlines uh, literally uh, every day. Uh, we'll consider um, um, the questions both historically uh, and as well as currently in terms of, of current uh, affairs. And we have with us uh, Professor Nye, one of the world's leading experts on uh, migration and, and immigration. Uh, I may add a little bit of my own uh, perspective. Um, my grandfather came to this country illegally uh, in uh, 1916. Um, because of the Chinese exclusion laws, he could not get into this country um, without uh, engaging in a little bit of fraud, he uh, bought a piece of paper pretending to be the son of a U.S. citizen, and that's how he was allowed to enter uh, as um, a paper uh, son. Um, and he went back to China twice, once when uh, he got married, and then the second time uh, when my father uh, was born. And both times he had to leave his family behind because of the immigration laws and yet he could make more money here in the United States as a waiter. And, and so that's what he did. But because of uh, immigration reform, uh, uh, my family uh, came in, in 1956, uh, including me. Um, uh, we were actually admitted as political refugees under the Refugee Relief Act of 1953. And so I uh, feel particularly blessed to be uh, doing uh, what I'm doing now, which included when I was a district judge swearing in uh, new uh, citizens. Um, so before we get to our topic, maybe I, I'll ask Professor Nye a, a few questions about her own background. Sure. Your, your parents uh, were immigrants? My parents were immigrants. Um, I was born in the United States, but my parents uh, were educated in China. They both went to medical school in China, and they came here in 1957 uh, to do their advanced training, to do their residencies. And they'd always planned to go back to China, but in 1949 there was this little incident called the Communist Revolution. And they decided they didn't want to go back. And they were actually part of several thousand Chinese students studying in the United States who became known as the stranded students. And in the early 1950s, uh, the president um, basically gave them all green cards. So they were, um, they were kind of like dreamers whose dream worked, right? They weren't really... Uh illegal aliens, were they? Well, I mean, it's, well, they might their have status is a little unclear at the time. Well, they might have overstayed a visa, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. But 
um, they eventually would have become illegal uh, right. without papers, yes. Um, and so um, before you became such a renowned scholar, uh, what did you do? You have a little bit of an unusual background right, for someone right. in academia. Right. Um, I went back to graduate school uh, in, I guess I, you would say, middle age. I had uh, many years of work as a community organizer, and I worked for a labor union here in New York City. I worked on their education department and political action mobilizing. Um, and then I worked as a researcher for uh, a labor consortium, the Consortium for Worker Education. So it's through my work there and my, my community experience that I came to really um, identify with the, uh, the issues facing immigrant workers, especially Chinese immigrant workers, but also others, Latinos and people from the Caribbean other places. My, my mother was a seamstress in Chinatown, was a member of uh, 1199. Um, and uh, in New York, uh, the unions had a somewhat different relationship with immigrants than um, other unions, uh, perhaps earlier in the... Uh, um, yeah, the, yeah, the organized labor has um, a history of nativism and anti-immigration um, uh, sentiment that goes back to the 19th century. And it's not really until the late 20th century that organized labor takes a clear stand uh, in favor of immigrant rights. And in part, that's because the membership of unions um, in the last half of the 20th century has changed tremendously. And I immigrants now make up a large portion of uh, workers who are organized, or they are workers who are um, bold enough to go and organize themselves and join unions. All right, so let's move on to, to migration. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into specifics uh, in, in, a, in a bit, but it'd be useful, I think, to begin with a bit of an overview. Um, what do we mean when we talk about uh, uh, migration? Well, migration is a very broad and capacious term. Birds migrate, right? Um, all kinds of uh, living things migrate. It's, it's part of, I think, the natural world and the human world. People move, and they move for all kinds of reasons. Um, they move uh, because they're in an area with lesser resources and they want to go to a place that has more resources. Or they move because uh, they're adventurous. You know, people have been moving as long as human history. But when we talk about immigration, we talk about a certain legal concept, a certain legal action where one leaves a country of origin and moves to a new country, what sometimes social scientists call a host country. And then the normative presumption is that they will become part of that country, their host country, although in practice that has always been an uneven, uh, an uneven experience. It's not just today. It's, it's always been uneven. Is, is your the, the focus... Um more on illegal immigration or what's been referred to as illegal immigration or undocumented aliens? Well, that's, that was the subject of my first book, uh, History of Undocumented Immigration, History yeah. of uh, Immigration Restriction. Um, but I'm interested in immigration, I think, much more broadly as, um, you know, uh, the undocumented are just one portion of the immigrant population. And it's not true that all immigrants are undocumented as you might have heard. <laughs> um, all right, let's turn to some, some history. Um, and 
And early on uh, in, in the history of the country, uh, there were very few restrictions on, on immigration. Is that correct? There were practically none practically until none. the late 19th century. Right? Yeah. And so when did illegal immigration first um, come into uh, existence? Right. So what the judge understands is something very basic that a lot of people don't understand because you don't have illegal or unlawful immigration if there are no restrictions, right? If there are no restrictions, then everybody's legal. And this is a big misunderstanding in our political discourse. A lot of people will say, well, my grandparents or my ancestors came here the right way. They came legally. They came through Ellis Island legally. They didn't cut in line, right? But there was no line. If everybody is legal, there's actually no great honor in being legal if everybody is that way, right? <laughs> Another way of putting it is no one was illegal. No one was illegal, right? Well, there, yeah. And there were a few exceptions. There are a few exceptions. But we have what I, I call a normatively open border, meaning it's open in general with some exceptions. And then there's a change after World mm-hmm. War II where our borders become what I, what I say is normatively closed, meaning they're closed in general and with some exception, we let people in. So there's a, a really a 180-degree turn. All right, so let's go back to the, the, the first restrictions. What the first restrictions were against the, the Chinese, is that right? Well, the very first restrictions, I think you'd have to go back to the Alien Sedition Acts in the 1790s, but yeah. they didn't last long, and they didn't really, I think, represent um, really the, the feeling of, of the American uh, nation, the young nation. But... Um, the early United States welcomed people from all over the world, well, mostly from Europe, to settle the country, right? This was a part of national development. Um, and the first restrictions were imposed on Chinese uh, starting in the 1870s, but with the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, um, Chinese were barred from entering the country. And it's the only law ever to name a group as undesirable for immigration, a lot of other groups have been targeted as undesirable, but somehow Congress didn't feel they could openly call them out, you know, Italians, right? There were other ways to exclude unwanted Europeans. But Chinese were the first and only group to be excluded by name. Um, explicitly. Explicitly. Excluded by ex- name. Explicitly excluded by name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're the, norm- they're the exception to the normative rule of open borders. Now, I, I understand that the, the first Chinese to come into the country in the mid-1800s were uh, greeted with curiosity. Mm-hmm. They yeah. were not unwelcome. They were seen, uh, uh, considered to be hardworking people. And then it all changed. Um, yeah. uh, it's, it's not widely known, but there were horrible acts of violence, uh, mass lynchings against uh, the Chinese um, um, 17 people uh, tortured and hanged, uh, 37 people, miners, gold miners, uh, Chinese mm-hmm. robbed and killed and their bodies thrown into the river. What, what accounts for all this? What happens? Well, the Chinese first came in the 1850s during the California gold rush, and they were in many ways like all the other people who came to the gold rush. You know, the, there were indigenous people in California and a few... American soldiers who had been stationed there during the Mexican War, who actually all went AWOL and went to the gold fields. Um, but people, once the, it was known that there was gold in the hills, you know, people came from 
the East, from the South, in the United States, but they came from Europe, they came from South America, they came from Hawaii and Australia, and they came from China. And so you have this big meeting of people from all over the world in a very competitive environment, right? And the American, the white American miners, they use nativism as a weapon of competition. You know, it's for Americans, it's not for foreigners. And this is really, has nothing to do with patriotism. It has to do with competitive advantage. Um, and by 1850, they actually drive out most Europeans and South Americans. And the Chinese, who are a little late to arrive, become then the focus of uh, nativist sentiment. But with the Chinese, the arguments made against the Chinese were not just that they were foreign, but they were racialized as a slave race. They were compared to African slaves in the South, and this was in the 1850s, so this is in the lead-up to the Civil War, where there is a heightened consciousness about the difference between slave labor and free labor. And Chinese, in fact, were not enslaved. They were not contracted or indentured workers. They were voluntary immigrants like all the other people looking for gold in California. But this racial label stuck to them in part because they looked different, um, and, and by calling them out as a slave race, um, that became the underpinning of a long, many decades-long exclusion movement. So the idea that Chinese are coolies, that they're kind of um, without personality, they're like machines, they can subsist on a bowl of rice every three days, you know, these you know, extreme stereotypes of how they would drag down the condition of whites. Part of the problem uh, in terms of competition was um, they didn't spend very much money. Uh, they they saved their money and sent it back to families in yeah, China. But they did spend money. Yeah, they did spend money too. I mean, this they saved money, right? And they, they were. I mean, a lot of the problem with a lot of stereotypes is that they're contradictory, right? So they were right. said to be um, subsist on a bowl of rice. They they didn't spend their money. They sent all their money home. But actually, I, I've been doing research on the Chinese in California, and it's really interesting. I've read accounts by um, white merchants in the gold districts who say the Chinese, they love to buy meat. <laughs> they come and they'll buy ducks, they'll buy chickens, they'll buy, I sold a half a pig to a bunch of miners. So they spent selectively, they spent when they wanted to have a big celebration. Um, they didn't spend money on liquor the way white miners did. Um, so everybody was both spending and saving, I think. Um. I think you talk about in your book, there's that interesting case of uh, the 22 uh, lewd uh, Chinese mm. uh, women. Qilong, yeah. Yeah, Qilong, uh, uh, which did go up to the uh, Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. But um, a boat arrived in uh, San Francisco Harbor with 600 Chinese, and the authorities let all of them off except for 22 uh, women. And why not? Why weren't they let off? Well, they were Chinese and they were traveling alone. And therefore, uh, the suspicion was that they were prostitutes. Right. right. And there resulted uh, a trial on whether they were prostitutes. And there uh, is a transcript of, of the trial. It's really pretty, pretty uh, interesting. Um, but it, 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 there were state laws um, and the case was largely about whether the federal government was 
in charge of immigration or whether state mm-hmm. laws could take matters uh, into uh, their right. Own I mean, that's hands. a that's a really important ruling, uh, not only because of what it revealed about attitudes towards women, sinks, women traveling alone, and Chinese women, but also, uh, I mean, people really study it because it's the time when the court recognizes that the federal government that is responsible for regulating immigration. And that is something that still exists today. And this is a source of tension that we have about, you know, sanctuary cities, right? Uh, can the federal government force local jurisdictions to enforce federal laws? Actually, the Constitution says no, but our present administration says they can, right? Yeah. Uh, Chai Long, um, the, the court wound up holding that this was a federal matter and that California could, could not take uh, immigration into its own hands. Right. And, and the issue came up again, and Chai Lung was cited in the discussion of the Arizona case when Arizona felt that the federal government wasn't doing enough to deal with illegal uh, immigration. Right. And right. then in the sanctuary city case, again, uh, mm-hmm. it, it is uh, coming up. So ironically, the, the 22 women won um, uh, their case but then that eventually led to um, the Chinese exclusion laws because then the federal government got, got into the, the acts. So ironically, um, uh, right. in the end, probably it, it was, it was uh, worse. Um, so let's move on to um, the, the 1924 statute, which is... Uh, an important uh, right. statute. So, right. why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So, this is the uh, this is the law that slams closed the door that had been open, right? That I've been talking about. This is the law that shuts the gate, and um, and it does so um, it does so after uh, quite a number of years of agitation for restriction, um, but it's not really passed until after World War One, as part of a kind of post-war <laughs> conservative movement. And um, the the aim of the law was to restrict immigration from southern and eastern Europe. We don't want any more Jews. We don't want any more Poles. We don't want any more Italians, uh, etc. Um, so there was an elaborate system of quotas that was established to give so so many quotas to different groups. And um, and those quotas existed within an overall quota, a limit, and that was the first time we have had any numerical limit on how many people could come into the United States, the first time there was any ceiling. So within that ceiling, which was 150,000, they were distributed according to um, whether the countries of origin were considered desirable or not. And they, they didn't use racial language overtly, but it was all laced with racial arguments against the Southern Europeans and the Eastern Europeans. So that was, so for example, Great Britain had a quota of over 50,000 and Italy had a quota of 5,800. And most of Britain's quota went unused because people from England weren't really immigrating to the United States by the early 20th century. Um, And then you begin to see these long lines and backlogs of Italians or or people from Greece, um, et cetera. So um, the law created... Uh, hierarchies right. uh, based on race and nationality. Right. And how were the quotas set? Well, let me... Okay, so they, they were set... Well, they were set by this very complicated formula um, 
that the Census Bureau was charged with figuring out the national origins of the American population because the quota was supposed to be in proportion to the population of those Americans from that background. So you would have, if Italians were so many, then they would get that proportion of the quota. So the problem is that um, how do you know what the national origin of the American people are? There's decades and decades, a hundred years or more of intermarriage, mixing, you know, people uh, maybe part German and part French. I they mean, also were using old numbers. They were right? using, using old numbers. 1890. Yeah, I, think. I mean, so it was yeah. it was a mess, um, mm-hmm. and it took a lot of um, uh, kind of fudging of the numbers. And in the end, even the head of the quota project uh, from the Census Bureau said that the whole thing was built on so many kind of conjectures and and um, suppositions that it was really a house of cards and it really could not mm-hmm. stand. But they were very impatient for the quotas um, in the uh, in Washington, so they had to submit something. The other thing, though, I should say Meaning about... Meaning that it was, it was driven by politics. Politics, right, exactly. Um, go ahead. You were going to mention... Well, something. the other part about this law, because that was the first part of the 1924 Act, the second part, which people don't really associate with it, was that it banned all Asians from immigration. So for Europeans, you had a policy of restriction, which was also racially differentiated. But for Asians, you had zero exclusion. But the Chinese were already banned. Right, but now Japanese, people from in South Asians, anybody from uh, who could be said to be Asian... Um, and this was something that actually took a while to work out, like who was not white, who was Asian. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way it was done was, again, it, this time it didn't say Japanese or Asian, but it said if you were an alien ineligible to become a citizen, then you, couldn't, you wouldn't be allowed in. And the problem was the, the 1790 uh, naturalization statute said that to become naturalized as an American citizen, you had to be a free white person. Right. Um, and there were cases over what that meant, uh, uh, including in the Supreme Court, which you talk about in your book. Right. Ozawa, a Japanese man, uh, Finn, a South Asian man who was indeed Caucasian. He was from a part of India where he was... Caucasian. Uh, Is it the, on the original a- Aryan? <laughs> that's, he argued, that's what he argued. He argued that I am pure blood, I am Aryan, given where I come from. Uh, in the Ozawa case, the, the court said, um, uh, you're not Caucasian. And so three years later, Finn comes along and thinks, I have it made because I'm Caucasian. And then the Supreme Court says, well, now we're going to apply uh, white within the common meaning, understanding of, of, of man, and you're not white. And so, so that's a way that they were able to cut out. Now, the 1924 Act, what did it do with respect to Mexicans? Okay, so that to me is in some ways the most interesting part of the story because the countries of the Western Hemisphere had no quotas. They had no numerical restrictions on entry. And that was something, I think, mostly driven by the State Department, which had a policy of um, a friendly relationship with our neighbors uh, in the Western Hemisphere, and they didn't want any um, impediments for Americans to go to Mexico or to Canada to, to do business, mostly. So, um, And they assumed that Mexicans who were coming to the southwestern United States to do farm labor would 
only come for a season and then they would go back. And that was, in fact, uh, a common pattern, right? So they thought there would be no settlement. So there were no quota restrictions. And But the 1924 law, because it has now this elaborate uh, structure of who can come in from where, everybody had to have a visa, right? Uh, what they called a, a properly issued visa. So you had to have a way to enforce this. So every so the law said that everybody entering the country had to come through an official port of entry and be officially inspected. So even though Mexicans did not have a quota, they actually were supposed to go through a, an official port of entry and be inspected, pay a head tax, you know, um, uh, you know, have their bodies inspected and things like this. So most Mexicans said, well, why should we bother doing that? We've been coming into work, you know, to go to the ranch or whatever without having to go through this uh, inspection. So, and it's expensive. So we'll just continue to do what we've always been doing. But that made them unlawfully present. So even though there was no quota restriction on them, they become, by the end of the 1920s, the largest single group of undocumented people. And that's where undocumented really comes from, because they don't have the document, right? They don't have the visa. They, they could come in, but they didn't want to wait online. Uh, and so... Well, uh, they could come in. And actually, um, by 1929, they, were, they actually imposed administrative rules that actually said they couldn't come in anyway. Yeah. But it's, it's a kind of weird border where... Um, it's uh, formally open, easy to cross, but only illegally. And um, so around the, the, the law also created um, uh, enforcement provisions. Right. That's and, when the Border Patrol is formed, yeah. 1925, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, those original Border Patrol uh, <laughs> officers were on horses and, and patrolled uh, largely uh, on horseback. Right, and a lot of them were former Texas Rangers. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and what was the 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 overall purpose of this 1924 Act and coming up with the quotas? I mean, what were the drafters trying? What were they trying to do here? Well, this gets to the question you posed in the beginning: is why is immigration a divisive issue? Um, the Europeans that were the target of the 1924 Act were people who came in the late 19th and early 20th century. And basically, they, they're the people who built New York, right? They dug the subways, they built the streets, they worked in the factories, you know, um, rolling cigars or sewing uh, garments. Um, and so immigrants were needed as a labor force, right? This is a time of industrialization and urbanization in America. And so um, things are just expanding enormously, and there's a need for immigrants as workers. But the workers who come meet a kind of cultural opposition from people who say um, they're not, that they don't look white, even though they're legally white. Um, they're not Protestants, you know, they come from. Uh, at this time, Italy was, cons- it- Italians were considered a, great, a degraded race by uh, most elite wasps in the United States. So there was a lot of uh, opposition. And a lot of what you hear today actually sounds exactly like the discourse of the first two decades of the 20th century. The immigrants live in slums. They are criminals. They are diseased. 
They don't want to learn English. They, they only stick to themselves. I mean, the whole litany is um, a very old, very old playbook. So that's what drove um, uh, the re- movement for restriction. And it's not until after World War I where the labor demands ease off. You know, um, American economic growth is uh, driven more by um, uh, efficiency and technology and less by just huge inputs of people and people power, people labor. Let's jump ahead. We're going to run out of time a little bit uh, soon. Uh, The 1965 Immigration Act, we'll we'll jump to that and and tell us about that and what that did and how it changed things, if it changed things. It changed a lot of things. Um, So the 1924 Act is is in place until 1965, um, and there are always people who oppose it, mostly people from immigrant groups themselves. Uh, And in the 1940s and 50s, um, there was really a, a growth of an immigrant reform movement. And that movement was uh, led by the children of the Ellis Island immigrants themselves. It was led by American Jews, Italian Americans, uh, other ethnic American groups. This is when the melting pot concept uh, comes. Well, well yeah, they, they, be, they popularize it. Yeah. They, the idea of America as a nation of immigrants is actually a concept that's born in the 1950s. It's a, new, a relatively new concept. Yeah. Um, so they mobilize for reform because they believe, rightly so, that the quotas are a stigma on their people. Right? It's as though Congress has said, people from your country are undesirable. Well, that's a stigma on America, Americans of that ethnic background. And many of these um, activists were um, allies of the African-American civil rights movement. Um, and they saw immigration reform as their own civil rights movement, as a civil rights for European ethnics. And it was passed in the same time frame as uh, exactly. the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights right. Act of 1965. Right. Uh, and uh, when, when the, the 65 Immigration Act was signed... President Johnson came to New York, and they did it. Uh, uh, the Statue of Liberty. Statue right. of Liberty on Liberty Island with great fanfare. Right. And, and so what did the statute do? So it repealed the national origin quotas, and it replaced it with a very complicated system. I won't get into, into the weeds with you, and I won't drag you down there into the weeds. But it replaced it with the system. Was, okay, so there's still an overall ceiling. There's still uh, an overall limit. And that overall ceiling was actually very conservative. It was based on uh, um, the 1924 ceiling of 150, and they uh, increased it according to by population growth, but it's the same percentage. So it was only 290,000. And then they decided that because the national origin quotas had been so disgusting, right, in their, in, its, in their racism, that they were going to treat everybody the same. So they said every country will have the same quota. Or put more precisely, every country can only have 7% of the mac- maximum of 7% of the total. So this is very much in the civil rights era of formal equality. We're going to tre- treat everybody the same. But the thing is, countries are not individual persons. They're not citizens. And different countries have different needs, so they created a system where the maximum number was 20,000. So Belgium gets 20,000, 
New Zealand gets 20,000. India gets 20,000. Mexico gets 20,000. And this is why we have undocumented immigration. This is the core reason why we have undocumented immigration is because the high-sending nations max out of their quota very quickly. Okay, it was 20,065. It's now 26,500. It's not a big increase. So if you, if you Google uh, the State Department visa bulletin, it's a fascinating little distraction if you, you know, can't sleep at night or something. <laughs> Google State Department visa bulletin, and it will tell you the date that they are processing green cards for by country. And it'll tell you that for most of the world, it's, it's, it's a moving process, meaning there's just a, a short bureaucratic wait. And then it'll give you a chart, and it'll, it'll have four countries there. It's always the same four countries. And it'll tell you what date they're processing. So for some, so it's, you can guess the countries, right? Mexico, India, China, and the Philippines. Those are always the four countries that have long lines. So if you look on that chart, you'll see that for some categories, right now they're processing people who applied for their green card in 1997. That's the line that they're told to wait on, right? And even that line is weird, because when I was researching my book, I had to understand how this line worked. So I finally, can I go on with this story? It's a cute little sure. story. Go I'll go on. I'll, I, I finally tracked down the guy at the State Department who figures out what date to put on that chart sure. every month. And I said, how do you figure that out? So he said, well, it's really complicated. He was very nice. I was a graduate student. He talked to me for over an hour. And he said, the thing is that sometimes the date could go forward or it could go backwards because their processing yeah. depends on who came forward to claim their spot. So, in fact, that line, that, that date could be, um, some people say you have to multiply by 40 years to actually account, because the date's not going to change the next month, right? It might just sit there for three years and then move a week. Mm. So it's, um, but anyway, that's how they figure um, that's, so this is the formal equality we have in our immigration system, which I think is deeply unequal and inequitable. What, what would work better? It seems like a difficult uh, problem. I mean, if you go back right. to um, you know, what you think uh, the demands are, it, 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 there are other issues right. and criticisms that could arise. Right, right. Um, well, I think, they, I think um, giving every country the same quota is, is a bad idea. We should can that. Yeah. And then you have to decide, well, then how are you going to do it? And I think there have been proposals, actually, um, uh, before 9-11, uh, President George W. Bush had, had been scheduled to meet with then-president uh, of Mexico, Vicente Fox. And they were actually going to talk about a different border relationship, a different immigration mm-hmm. system that would have had a different visa system between the two countries. So we can think outside the box. We can think about um, uh, countries we have close relations with, with historical ties with. You know, right now our system has absolutely no relationship to the labor market whatsoever. It's based on this strict grid of quotas, maximums, visas. It's it's completely rigid. It cannot respond to changes in the labor market. It's a big problem. All right, we'll, we'll go back to, we'll get back to, uh, what to do. solving the problems okay. and what to do in a couple of minutes. <laughs> one, more, one more law, and that is the 1986 uh, 
IRCA, mm. Immigration mm. Reform and Control Act. Uh, and so what, what did that statute do? Uh, IRCA, okay, so if we go back to 65 and we have this problem of um, uh, people from certain countries not being able to enter because they're, the, the quote is too low, right? So you have then um, an, an accretion of undocumented persons, right, especially from Mexico, and so, um, and Congress actually knew that this was going to happen, so they delayed imposing the quota on Mexico until 1976. And by the end of the 1970s, everybody was screaming about all the undocumented Mexicans in the country who were undocumented because they had created this impossible situation for them. Uh, so then, by so there were demands to uh, resolve this problem, and IRCA, when it was finally passed in '86, was an attempt to wipe the slate clean by legalizing those people who are here um, without papers. And at that time, it was a little shy of 3 million people who were eligible to be legalized. And they did not have, you know, a 10, 15-year path to citizenship the way the Senate talks about it now. They got green cards within a year. Um, And then the other parts of the law... um, so the idea is that we'll, we'll wipe the slate clean, we'll legalize everybody who's here, who shouldn't be here, we'll legalize you, and then we're going to make sure nobody else comes in illegally. So we're going to ramp up enforcement on the border, we're going to impose sanctions on employers if they hire people without documents. So stricter controls. Stricter That's controls. when you right. had to provide proof of uh, right. you know, the status to get citizen, it to, to status, be yeah. hired. So the problem with this is that, I mean, we know that um, the buildup of the border uh, through the late 20th century is incredibly militarized. Um, $22 billion has been spent, I think, on the border. Um, And the only thing that really stopped people from coming uh, um, into the country without documents was the 2008 recession. The recession did the job that the, the, the walls or the fencing and the... Um, Border Patrol had never been able to completely stop. And I think, think for me, the biggest challenge in talking to people about immigration policy is that people have to um, understand that nations can never completely seal their borders. Well, you you could with, with a lot of military force, like by deploying troops all along the border and tanks, right, uh, but short of the actual military stationing on the border, you cannot seal the border. And so as long as you have restriction, you will have un- unauthorized presence. As long as there is a labor market that demands people's labor, that wants people's labor, as long as you have families that want to bring their loved ones to be with them, um, and as long as you have restriction, there will be people who will find a way to come if they cannot come uh, legally. And it doesn't make them bad people. It means we have a bad law. Now, uh, there were 3 million uh, undocumented aliens that yeah. were legalized in 1986. And how many undocumented aliens are there in the country today? I think the estimate is 11 million. 11 million. So what can be done with them? Uh, what, what, what's the solution well, let me just say something about the, about the 11 million. Is that yeah. the, one of the reasons that's such a high number? It was over 12 million 
And then during the recession, a lot of people left. Um, but the reason why we have 11 million, in part, is because of the buildup of enforcement along the border. Because before 86, or even after 86, a lot of people um, would come into the country from, from Mexico, uh, work for a while, and then go, they would go back and forth. And even if they were going back and forth unlawfully, it was a, a calculated risk that one could take. And then the more and more the border become mili became militarized, the more people decided, we'll just stay here. <laughs> and so that's in part an unintended consequence. If they went back, it was going to be hard to come back. Right. So they just decided, we'll just stay. And that's in part why it's such a big number. Okay, so what can so be what, done? So what can be done? <laughs> well, I think we have to make them all legal. We can do Congress can do that. Congress made them illegal. Congress can make them legal. There's no, there's no well, one problem magic with that in this. Is, is so that we, we made 3 million uh, legal. Now we have 11 million. If you make the 11 million legal, isn't, doesn't that give incentive to more people to come here illegally with the hope that someday they'll be made uh, legal? Well, anybody who comes today uh, probably knows that the chances of becoming legal is pretty slim. So I, I don't think I, I don't I don't really buy the argument that people come to the United States to kind of cheat the system. Um, they come to work to support their families um, and, and to have their families with them. This is why most people come today. Actually, people are coming from Central America for actually for different reasons. They're coming because they're fleeing violence. They're fleeing threats to their lives and the lives of their, their children. Um, so that's, that's it's actually a very special thing that we're witnessing now. We, we don't, there isn't a Mexican immigration coming into the United States in considerable numbers. Mexican immigration right now is net zero. The number of people who come in is about the same as the number of people who leave. So the people at the border are not Mexicans. They are from Central America. So, What is the difference between uh, refugee policy and immigration policy? So um, that's a great question, and I think it's really important that we, we understand the distinction. So an immigrant is somebody who comes under this quota system, right? And it's presumed that you are uh, able-bodied and, uh, and will, be, will work and, um, and not be a public charge, not be a, a burden to the state. Um, and we expect immigrants to contribute to, to this country. And in fact, we say we like immigrants because they contribute. Refugees, on the other hand, are people who, um, because of uh, their experience or fear of persecution uh, in their home country, um, have fled that, those countries. And a refugee is actually somebody in, um, in, a, in a third country, in a, typically in a refugee camp, who is looking to be resettled somewhere else, right? They have fled war, famine, um, torture, you know, all kinds of, of terrible things. And um, the United States has a very mingy refugee law, in my opinion. Um, until 1980, we didn't even have a refugee law, um, with a few exceptions, like the one your family and that's actually great that they came that way because that law actually had very few spots for Asians. Mm -hmm. It was mostly for Europeans. It was intended um, yeah. uh, in part in terms of its application to Asia to help people who were fleeing from communism uh, in, in, in China. And that's right, but how they only had parents. a few thousand. There were only a few. We were right. lucky then. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. great. 
Yeah. So, um, so asylum, asylum seekers are people. So a refugee is somebody who's outside the country who uh, might be eligible to be resettled in another country like the United States or Canada or Australia or something. Asylum, an asylee or an asylum seeker is somebody who actually shows up in the United States, say, and asks for asylum. So that is somebody who arrives and says, take me in because I am, I am in trouble. And the law, both domestic law and international law, says that we have to interview that person. You cannot forbid them from coming in. They have a right to enter Cross, come into a port of entry or anywhere and say, I am seeking asylum. And ask for asylum. And ask for asylum. And they're not automatically given yeah. it, but... Over- we actually get those cases. Um, yeah, yeah. Once oh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the immigration authorities rule on them, if, if, if they're denied, then they get to appeal right. to our court. Is there um, really a national crisis uh, at the border? No. I mean, there's a there's a humanitarian crisis because of how people are being treated. I don't know if people saw, if you saw the thing that was in, uh, online today about uh, at the El Paso bridge, the bridge from Juarez into El Paso, there's an, a, an underpass of a highway and they have people, they have migrants under this highway behind a chain link fence on the, in the dirt and rocks and they keep them there for a week yeah. before they, they process them. So, they don't need to send troops to the border. They need to send an army of asylum officers. That's what they need to do. So um, finally, it, and then we'll turn to some audience questions. It, it sounds like you think the answer is no restriction, or am I not reading you correctly? Well, I think there, I think there are some restrictions that are reasonable. I think we should screen people for uh, security. We should screen people for health. You know, We shouldn't admit people with communicable diseases, um, but it should be based on individual criteria. Um, I, I think that, um, I think this country can use a lot more immigrants. You know, America has a declining birth rate, um, just like Western Europe and Japan. We need the labor we need, force. We need people. We need people. And, um, uh, and immigrants contribute to this country. So I, I think the idea that if you kind of open the gate it, you know, it would be opening a floodgate, and it would, it would just be inundated with millions and millions of people. Well, in the 19th century, the gates were open, and we absorbed the people who came. Uh, and actually, people don't really go somewhere for a job if they know there are no jobs there. So I think actually, it, it could, it would not be the disaster that that people imagine. Yeah. I think so. I think we have to well, think about things differently. Related to that point is a question. How was immigration into the United States impacted during the Great Reset, uh, Depression? Do you believe a significant recession in the 21st century would have a similar effect? Well, immigration plummeted during the 1930s. That's certainly the case, in part because of the, um, the uh, 1924 Act, which was just you know a few years in advance of, <clears throat> excuse me, in advance of the Depression. Right, yeah. Um, but there are no jobs. Um, there are no jobs anywhere in the world, um, and uh, so there were there was a, a real a decline in immigration. <clears throat> As I just said, after two thousand eight, um, Mexican immigration uh, declined uh, in part because of the recession, but also because um, uh, Mexico itself has a declining birth rate. 
So the pressures on emigration are lessening. Um, Has another nation replaced the United States as the idealized destination for immigration? Or does the United States continue to be the top choice? Well, I think a lot of people around the world still want to come to the United States because there are uh, there's a perception of economic opportunity here. Um, Canada has been getting some. Canada has been getting, and actually, since the the election of um, uh, President Trump, there are a lot of uh, people who don't want to come to the United States. They they go elsewhere. Yeah. They go to Europe or they go to Australia. Um, New Zealand. New Zealand has, apparently has seen an uptick. Uh, uh, interestingly. <clears throat> All right, well, this is sort of, we've been talking about this, but despite the nation's strong economy today, immigration remains a divisive issue. And why do you think that is? Where should I start? Well, let me first, <laughs> let me first, say, let me first say that I think <clears throat> that uh, polling data show that the majority of Americans uh, are not against immigrants. And they're not against undocumented immigrants either. The majority of Americans think immigration is a good thing for the country in a general sense. And a majority of Americans think that those who are undocumented should have some way to get legalized. You know, they may, there may be differences on the policies. So it's a, it's a minority that is against immigration. And I think what's really been unfortunate um, in the last several years with the, the election um, has been a real um, use of anti-immigration uh, sentiment to get people excited. Uh, and I think it's, it's a very close um, uh, cousin to racism. I mean, a lot of it is racist. It's aimed at uh, mostly Latino immigrants, brown people. Um, people aren't jumping up and down about the illegal Irish in New York or the illegal Polish in Chicago. There's very large communities of illegal Irish and Polish, but and Russians. People not going crazy about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are lots of questions here, good ones. Um, the issue of immigration is shaping British politics in a fundamentally damaging way. Can you project how migration could shape American politics over the next five years? Well, I don't like to do predictions. I'm a historian. I look at the past. Well, we're seeing it in the past They're anyway. Seeing, we're seeing a lot we're of seeing it. it now. Well, you know, I we'll think... We'll see it again in the future. It's interesting, you know, in, in, since the, um, I would say, 80s and 90s, uh, immigration is always this big um, lightning rod in American politics. And yet, if you look at exit polls... Um, in a big election, and you ask people, what was your most important issue? It's never immigration. I mean, immigration is, is only for a small number of people. It's always the economy or national security, right? So yeah. I think, though, that um, the divisiveness that's been generated in our political discourse, though, is extremely harmful. And um, whether or not we can change the composition of the Congress to more better reflect the sentiment of the American people. I think that's that's our challenge. Because I think what they do in Congress does not reflect what most of us, I think, believe. Uh, I don't know if you'll know the answer, but to what, what, what percentage of the United States Army during 
World War II was made up of immigrants, or more generally, the, the U.S. armed forces, to what extent are they, they immigrants? Gee, I don't know the answer. Yeah. I, I don't know what the answer number, is. But there are a lot. There are a, a lot. lot. And right. they're actually, from the days of the Revolutionary War and, and, and General Washington's army, we have relied heavily on immigrants in our military uh, forces. Um, in, um, in the immigration law, there are uh, preferences uh, and, and ways to get citizenship faster if you have served in the military. So, so the, 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 the country, the government has recognized that those who serve right. deserve some advantages. Well, you know, I mentioned the 1790 uh, uh, Naturalization Act before when it was originally free white persons. Well, after the Civil War, it was extended to free white persons and individuals of African descent. Well, why did they suddenly uh, so generously extend it to Africans? It's because so many sl- former slaves fought uh, for the North uh, in the Civil War. So there, there's an example of uh, the government uh, rewarding uh, 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 immigrants. Um, what policies, social movements, or narratives do you think have lessened uh, xenophobia in the United States? Um, for example, help bring about the, the melting pot uh, notion. I think the dreamers, uh, probably more than any other social group, um, did the most to change public opinion about immigration. Um, starting, I guess, around 2000, early 2000s, uh, students who were undocumented began to organize. Um, and what they first organized for was actually fairly modest. It was uh, college tuition, in-state college tuition, because if you were not documented, you could not go to a state college as a resident. You had to go as an international student which was, you know, five or six times more expensive. So the dream movement started with students who wanted to go, uh, wanted to continue their education after high school. And it became, you know, this big movement of young people who were brought here by their parents when they were very small um, and uh, grew up in this country. Uh, many of them didn't even know that they had, let, that they lacked legal status until they were in high school. And... They said, "What's mom, what's this FAFSA yeah. <laughs> form I have to fill out? Um, and so I think what they, they, they put a certain face on the problem of the undocumented, these, these young people. And, and it, was, um, it was not without some problems, I think. I think they themselves would say that what made their, their campaign so compelling was a certain kind of narrative about... Um, the high school valedictorian who couldn't go to college because you didn't have status, right? Um, so there was a certain kind of deserving figure that was created and, and promoted. Um, on the other hand, I think it really moved uh, millions of people in this country and it's, I think changed the political landscape. Lots of uh, institutions supported this. Right. You, you've, you've talked or written about... Uh, a statute of limitations in this right. context. And what? tell us what you mean by that. So the way we do things now is that we have heavy restrictions 
and then millions and millions of people uh, accrete as an undocumented population. And then we have a hand-wringing uh, struggle for years over whether or not we're going to legalize them. And then we legalize 3 million, all right, or potentially now 8 to 11 million. And my proposal is that we should treat unlawful entry as an offense like other offenses that have statutes of limitation, right? This is a, well, you're the lawyer, you're the judge, but this is a standard legal principle. Well-accepted principle. It's an accepted principle, right? Everything has a statute of limitation, whether it's civil or criminal, and there are very few exceptions. So you probably know what crimes or offenses have no statute of limitation. Murder, kidnapping, treason, and walking across the border without a visa. And when you think about it, why should we continue? That's why should we make people live in the shadows in perpetuity? You know, there should be some time at which we recognize that they have become members of our society. You could use the language um, used in criminal law that they've reformed in the sense that they've become good, good citizens, I mean, small C citizens. They own property, they have jobs, they have families, they have roots in our community. Um, we should accept them. And so um, that's, that's something that immigration reformers have been talking about is uh, a deadline after which you can't deport somebody. And we used to actually have that on immigration right. before the 20s. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History or visit us at nyhistory.org.